But in John chapter number nine, beginning there in verse number one, I'd like to read through just the first 15 verses so we will see uh, the context in which uh, this account is given to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. John nine, verse one. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me, while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Shalom, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him, but he said, I am he. Therefore said they unto him, How were thine eyes opened? He answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes and said unto me, Go to the pool of Shalom and wash. And I went and washed, and I received sight. Then said they unto him, Where is he? He said, I know not. They brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then again the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He said unto them, he put clay upon mine eyes, and I washed and do see. In our text this morning, we're dealing with another miracle of Christ. It would also become another source of complaint. Anytime Jesus performed a miracle, there was always someone complaining. There was always someone lodging an accusation against him. And of course, many times it was the Pharisees who did that. Specifically, this is the sixth time we are intentionally told about a miracle that Jesus performed on the Sabbath day. Uh, those things are, they matter because the Sabbath day, of course, was a source of uh, great anger that the Pharisees would direct towards Jesus, that they believed he should not be performing any of these things, that he was a Sabbath breaker or a Sabbath violator. This would be another occasion. Jesus would uh, again uh, deal with their objections and he would deal with their objections not by apologizing, but basically by telling them the authority in which he had. What we see illustrated here in the first few verses is what I've simply just entitled today, and we'll, we'll, we'll use this as our subject today, a divine act of sovereign mercy. A divine act of sovereign mercy. Uh, this act that Jesus performs, uh, we'll see that it was all of him. Uh, it was initiated by him. Uh, he was the one who carried it out without the assistance of anyone else. And we need to understand that as this is one continuous narrative, uh, we are dealing with this one act that God performed towards this blind man. Let me give you some characteristics about this man, first of all. Uh, number one, it was our Lord who saw the blind man. The blind man didn't see him. So we're very careful in understanding that it was the Lord who saw the man, the man didn't see him. And you say, well, that's kind of an obvious thing, preacher, because the Bible says the man was blind. Yes, but it's more than just the physical eyes to see with. 
Number two, uh, the blind man did not call upon the Lord to have mercy on him. It was the Lord who acted upon him. Nowhere do we see in this text that the blind man calls out to Christ and says, have mercy on me, nor does he say, Lord, will you heal me from my blindness? So what you see illustrated here is you see this man who is in need. This man has a need that only Jesus can meet. Not only a physical need, but of course he has a spiritual need, which we are so common, it's so commonplace to see that Jesus never just dealt with the physical, he was always dealing also with the spiritual. So what we understand about this is Jesus is going to heal this kind of a quick overview of chapter number nine. Uh, we will see Jesus as he healed the blind man on the Sabbath. The Pharisees are going to take steps to interrogate uh, not just the man who was once blind, but the man's parents. Uh, they're going to go to the man's parents and then they're going to go to himself. And uh, they're eventually, because they're so happy that the blind man can see, they're going to throw him out of the synagogue. What a way to receive a man who just received sight. We think we'd be rejoicing with the man who was blind that now he can see. But the Pharisees, they will cast him out uh, of the synagogue. And we also will see that he will confess Christ. Uh, this blind man, this aforementioned man who was once blind, he will confess Christ and he's going to make a serious charge against the Pharisees. He's going to charge them of being spiritually blind. Now that's a conversion. Uh, there's a man whose eyes are open. Now he sees and he says, Christ is the reason that I see and you Pharisees are spiritually blind. We won't get that far this morning, but uh, that's what happened here. So we see here in verse number one, we have a man who is blinded from his birth. Uh, that's all we need to know. Uh, this is a man which has never had sight. This is a man who had never seen even the light of day. Uh, we don't know. Uh, I, I like how some uh, textual critics get into this and they say, well, how blind was he? Uh, he was as blind as you could be. He couldn't see anything. Uh, we, we could say uh, that he was hopelessly blind. There was uh, no aspect of him that said he could see anything. So we know this about him. This man could not see Jesus. He could not see him physically, and he could not see him spiritually. But sight came from Jesus to this man. Now notice in this narrative, the questions that are being asked, the first set of questions are not asked by the Pharisees, but whom? They're asked by the disciples. The disciples are asking the question, why is this man blind? And they're going down their list of reasons why this man is suffering from this hopeless condition. Look at verse 2. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin? This man or his parents that he was born blind. In other words, they connected this man's blindness with somebody sinned. In other words, this wouldn't happen unless there had been sin involved. So he must have done something, or the parents must have done something, but who did this? And we very clearly see uh, that Jesus answers that in a very definite manner when he says, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents. Now, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that the blind man is sinless, and he's not saying the parents have never sinned. All right, let's get that out in the open. We all know that, right? I didn't have to tell you that. You know that. But that's not what he's saying. But what he is saying here, here Jesus is speaking to these disciples who walk with him every single day. They pray with him. They, they converse with him. 
You would think that these disciples would have known better than to ask this question, yet here we see the disciple, the very essence of the word disciple means to be a learner. And what important truth that is. Uh, as disciples of Christ, we are always learning. Uh, you, you don't know all that you're going to know about the Lord today. You don't know everything that there is to know. There are things. We are disciples. And as Jesus is, is teaching these disciples, uh, they were, here's what's really happening. They are speaking something that could have led them into an error. Okay? Part of teaching is actually picking up on things that may lead them to fall into error. You don't, by the way, you don't uh, just fall into error like you fall into a hole walking on a street. Okay? What happens is a thought process begins. That process moves you to begin to formulate a thesis as to what you think is happening, and that becomes your new belief. You don't just fall off a cliff into a new doctrine or a false error. Jesus is using this as an example to show them you're equating this man's blindness as a consequence of sin. But Jesus, in verse number three, gives them the exact reason why the man is born blind. And this is fascinating to me. But that the works of God should be made manifest in him. This man's blind so that God's work can be seen. Wow. Isn't that something? Here's this condition of blindness. Now, all of us today, I'll make a general statement, see relatively well. We see some with a need, a corrected vision, which is what mine is. If I take contacts out, I couldn't see you. Literally, you'd all be a blur. I wouldn't be able to even make out, your, I, I may know who you are, but I couldn't see anything. And as we look at this and we think about it and we, we think about what it is to be blind, we, we all see relatively well. But to be blind physically, it's a difficult condition to be in. People have said that those who had sight first struggle with it more because they know what it used to be. They know what they used to be able to see. But those who have been born that way, who've never had vision, it's totally different for them. They, that's all they've ever known is to not be able to see. This blind man, all we know about him is this man had never been able to see. The Lord is going to give them instruction as to why he's doing what has happened. This tells us about this man's blindness. Who made this man blind? God himself made him blind. We know today no condition is not without God's hand in it and even in this situation of blindness. Now, to misunderstand God is to say, well, that's quite cruel. Why does God give this man such a horrible condition? But when we understand why he did it, that the works of God should be made manifest in him or to be revealed. You see, the blindness was not surpassed by the works of God. The works of God is the reason a man was blind, not so that they could be kept secret, but that they might be manifest, not just to the man, but to all who see it. But the disciples were perplexed. They're questioning what's going on here. But here's a concluding statement we can make. This man's not blind as a result of direct sin in himself or in his parents. He's blind in order that God may have a 
platform to display his glory. One of the greatest difficulties is to understand, and this may not be the best word, the platforms in which God uses to display his glory. Platform is probably not the right word, but that's what I'm going to go with. It's a, it's a way that God shows himself. God often shows himself in dark things. He shows himself in things that are not the most likely of things. It's easy for us today to see the works of God when everything is good. It's easy for us to praise God when we're healthy. It's easy to praise God when we have all that we need. It's a little bit more difficult to praise God in these things, but it's in those things that God often reveals himself the most. Our difficulties, our trials, our struggles. I've never met a person who enjoys their difficulties who's normal. Okay, on the surface, they say, I love it. Now, I have met people who say, listen, I've been given this so that I can depend on God more. We used to have, I still remember this lady, and I, 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 was, I was very young, and this was at the very first church I was ever a part of. We had, we had a group of, of three blind ladies who, one of them in the church, would go and pick them up every single week, and they would sit right on the front row. And I can remember, I can still remember sitting back and watching them and watching the joy that they had. None of them could be, they had to be brought to their seats. Uh, I think two of the three had been blind all their life. They had never seen, they had never been able to see anything. And I'm telling you, they were joyous people. When the music, would, when the congregational singing would start, and I can still see her, one, she would be so taken by what she was hearing. And it, to, to, to most people on the outside looking, if they walked in, they'd say, what's wrong with that lady? But we knew what she was doing. And she would just very like this. And she would just move her head back and forth. And she would grin and she would smile every time those hymns would start. It was almost like she could see him. But yet she had never been able to see any of us. She loved the Lord and she would say things like that, that this was given to me so that God might be seen through me. Now that seems small at the time. I didn't think anything of it. They were just the three blind ladies. But isn't it amazing how God brings people in our lives and we look back on it and we look back at it differently and say, wow, that person's joy or that person's attitude, they had a tremendous influence in how I view life. And it meant so much now. We don't, we're not told a lot about this man, but he had a condition. It was given to him by the Lord and yet the Lord's gonna use it as a way to teach his disciples as well. By way of application, we, we do need to be very careful not to draw conclusions based upon someone's trial or disability that it came because of sin. All I have to say is the name Job. All of you know what that means. We see that the hand of God was in Job's life and Job went through the unthinkable and yet, we've got to be hasty not to say, you know, and some of Job's friends even suggested, Job, what in the world did you do to make God so mad? And the reality is, we've got to be very careful about that. 
I've heard many pastor error made that way, say, well, this is happening to you as a consequence of what you did 10 years ago, what you did yesterday. Be very careful about that. There are situations where God is clearly using this as a means to display his gracious power. Our Lord makes it extremely clear that this man's blindness was not due to a personal sin, but it had been given to him for a particular reason. That reason, again, verse 3, that God's glory might be seen. Jesus then goes on and expounds upon his works. I must work the works of him. I must work the works of him. Of course, the him that he's referring to is the one who sent me. It's what he says. The one who sent him is the Father. Our Savior, the Lord, he was a servant of the Father. He was sent here to do a specific, certain work. Jesus came to do that work. Jesus came to manifest the work of the Father. Now again, we could, we could move into a situation of how this ought to instill in us the desire and a, a desire to be a servant of the Lord, and that would not be uh, inappropriate. But the idea here is not to spur us to servant action of God, but to understand the purpose that Jesus Christ was a servant who came here to display his works. Now, again, I think Jesus is a great example of what we ought to do. Whatever the Lord tells us to do, we ought to be willing to do it, no matter what the cost is. However, the Apostle Paul himself said, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Paul had a, he had a great desire to be a servant of God. But Jesus, as he comes to be the servant of the Lord, he says, he doesn't say, I need to think about the work of the works or do those works. He says, I must work those works. This isn't a choice. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, the night cometh. Many a commentator has various opinions on this. He says, when no man can work. I believe personally from my own personal study and from reading some of the commentaries that I do, again, I'm not standing here as being an expert on this. But I believe when Jesus is talking, in the, he's talking about himself and he's using the a picture of day and night as day as he is the light of the world now and he's using the word night as his death. In other words, he's saying there is coming a time when I will no longer be able to work the works in the way in which I'm doing them today. My death is coming. Now we know what that means. The death means there's going to be a burial, but the burial means there's going to be a resurrection, and a resurrection means there's going to be an ascension. But I believe that's what Jesus was talking about, is he has an allotted time in which he was going to do these works. Jesus' ministry of works and with the disciples was not much more than three and a half years, so we, we see that there was a limited time in which Jesus was doing these things. So our Lord states here that Jesus knew his death was coming, and he knew, of course, like all men, he had a limited amount of time. He looked at, on the affliction of this blind man as an opportunity to display the glory of God. He uses the terminology we all can understand. As long as I am in the world, that connects to verse number four. That's how you can kind of see what he's saying in verse four, as long as I'm in the world. Now, again, can you... 
kind of put your minds, put your mind with the disciples and wonder what they must have been thinking. Remember, he's answering their questions. Now, there's a great debate, and, and not really a debate to the standpoint, the disciples didn't know everything all at the same time. They would, he told them later, you wouldn't be able to bear everything I have to tell you right now. If I told you all that I've come to do and how this is all going to end, he said you couldn't take it. But you notice what he is doing here. He's saying, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Now that statement alone, I am the light of the world, dealing with a blind man, suggests that the blindness of this man is going to be used as an illustration to illustrate how Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Or we might put it this way, how Jesus illuminates the soul. Or we could even say, by our doctrinal stance, how he opens blind eyes that no longer could receive light, that now they receive light. You know, a person is blind because their eyes will not receive light. Light dispels darkness. Darkness never dispels light. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. I am an illuminator of not only this man's eyesight, but an illuminator of this man's soul. But he does say, I'm not always going to be at work in this world. So he says, as long as I'm here, I'm the light of the world. I must do the works of him that sent me. This man is blind because he is a platform in which my works and the works of my father will be revealed. And with that, in verse 6, he says, When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Exactly what all of us would do, right? It's the most un, un, unseen thing he could do. And there's a couple of reasons for that. And again, we're going to have to understand some of Jewish history and understand some of what things are being represented here. That's the, that's the beauty of the Word of God. There's always something here. It's, it, it, you can't just read through it and say, well, what, what's the significance of that? Well, number one, notice, he, notice the, the means in which Jesus uses here. Now, don't answer out loud, but did the Lord always use means to heal? Not always. In other words, sometimes he just spoke it and the person was healed. Sometimes it was just a single touch. But sometimes he used ordinary, everyday things, what we would refer to as working miracles with means. Now this one, to a Jew, uh, to a Pharisee, would be highly inappropriate to use, I don't mean to be gross today, but to use his own saliva as a means of healing. If you go back in the Old Testament, you study and look at the Old Testament, and when there's references made to, to spit, it's a sign of disdain. It's a sign of hatred. The, the most offensive thing, again, I'm not trying to be gross, but the most offensive thing you could do to a person you disagreed with is to spit at them. Okay? It's gross on all sides. Jesus is using this to the Jew, to the Pharisee, which would have been absolutely horrific to think about what he's doing here. This was not the normal remedy for healing a blind person, spit in the ground and make clay. Okay, so he's using means. He's using things that are able to be seen, but they're not without meaning. 
Now, it would seem, again, if you and I, and don't recommend this, but as a young boy, I would have loved to turn dirt into mud. Matter of fact, it was the highlight of my day. But I would never think that putting water in dirt and making mud and putting it on the eyes is going to make eyesight. Matter of fact, I'm going to think the opposite. That's going to blind me, isn't it? If I put water in dirt and mix it together and it makes mud, I put it in my eyes. And I did that once or twice as a child. It's now you have these inappropriate means, things that don't seem logical. The power of God is in this. The power of God. Had any other person, and we all know this, done the same thing Jesus did, the man's eyes would have never been opened. It's the power of God on display. Jesus is doing this. It's not just an ordinary man. Again, why is Jesus doing this? He's doing this to display his glory. Now, Jesus has used this before. If you look in, we won't look there today, but in Mark 7 and Mark 8, he had used saliva before as a means of healing. But ordinarily, this would be used with somebody who is in shame. Now, let's make one thing clear. The mud had nothing to do with healing the blindness. Okay? The mud did not become magic mud. And you say, why do you have to say that? Because you'd be surprised where people go with this. That the healing power was in the mud. No, the healing power was not in, it wasn't that Jesus touched the mud and made the mud powerful. It says he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. This blindness that he had been given is now going to be followed with a test of the man's obedience. Notice the next phrase. The man doesn't say his eyes opened when he put the mud on his eyes. He tells the man to do something. What's he tell the man to do? He said unto him, go wash in the pool of Shalom. Now, we can speculate here. Had he not gone to the pool of Shalom, would, he have been, would his eyes have been opened? It's very clear that part of this healing was Jesus commanded the man to go. And by the way, notice the Bible gives us an interpretation of itself. It says, which is interpretation sent, the pool of Shalom. Shalom means sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing in stages. Is that what your Bible says? No, it says he came seeing instantly. The minute he did, as the Lord had instructed him, he now has his sight. This man, who is now once blind, follows the Lord's instructions. But notice, it was Jesus who put the clay on the man's eyes, and it was the blind man obeyed what the Lord had told him. Now, this should have been a joyous event. Now, let me go back to my illustration with the three blind ladies. If I would have told you I came in one Sunday and all three of those women who had never seen before, two never all their life, and the one who was blinded later in life, they all could see. Do you think as a church family there would have been some rejoicing in that? 
I mean, wouldn't you think you'd have been, that woman would have come in the door and she would have said, listen, I can see. And they didn't have to bring her in on the bus that goes to pick up the blind ladies anymore. She, they come in, she doesn't need her cane anymore. She doesn't need anybody to walk. You'd have thought, they would have been just joyous if this woman can see. And I think even a person outside of the church who has nothing to do with religion or Christianity or belief, whatever you want to say, here's a story about a blind person now seeing. I think even... Even some of the worst of humanity rejoices in that. Says, wow, that's kind of neat. A woman or a man who was blind can now see. Now look what verse 8 says. The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him that he was blind, in other words, they could confirm it, he was blind, said, is not this he that sat and begged? In other words, the neighbors were at a loss. Notice some of them said, this is he. Others said he is like him, but he said, I am he. There's a question about how this man, they're at a loss. They can't explain it. How can this man who was born without his sight now all of a sudden see? Guess what these neighbors now become? These neighbors now become witnesses of Christ's works. They become the recipients of the manifestation of God's glory. Listen, if a, a person who is diagnosed with a condition goes into a doctor with that condition, comes out of that doctor without that condition, who gets the glory? If you're a true believer in God, God gets the glory, not the doctor. God used the doctor to, 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 to illustrate that. But who ultimately gave the healing? God gave the healing. You know, God can use an atheist doctor as a platform. You realize God can use a hater of Jesus Christ as a platform to display his glory. So when we look at things and we say, listen, this, is, this person is a horrific person, yet God's glory can still be manifested in that situation, especially when we see healing. But this man noticed his response to their questions. I am he. No, there's, no, there's no question. He says, I am that. I'm clarifying, confirming to you my identity. I'm the same man who you have seen here day after day, week after week, year after year, sitting here begging. And now I stand before you with my sight. We use that phrase almost as a Christian cliche. I was once blind and now I see. That phrase is not a cliche. Actually, this man will say that later in this chapter. That's where we get that expression. That's where parts of the hymns come from. I was once blind, but now I see. When Fanny Crosby was writing about seeing Jesus, there's no doubt in my mind, Fanny Crosby as a hymn writer had the blind man and other blind people in the Bible in mind when she said, now I see. Fanny Crosby was blinded at a young age. She had eyesight and she was blinded. And yet, read her hymns. Many hymns talk about seeing. Not seeing things before she was blind. Seeing Jesus. Seeing him. She speaks about seeing Jesus when she got to heaven. Because you know what she knew? She knew not only had she been spiritually healed from that which ailed her, she knew that this physical blindness was just a temporary blindness and that she would see Jesus with her exact eyes. This man, very short and sweet, says, I'm he. 
I am the same man who could not see, and now I see. This man's story was short, it was sweet, and yet it was wholly true. You know, sometimes we get into a, an embellishment of our salvation, don't we? We say, well, here's the story. And we go through the whole process of how it was a bright, sunny day. And I was at, I was at church, and I was reading this, and I was reading this. And there's nothing wrong with that. And we get all the way to the conclusion. And, and what we could have simply said is this. I was once blind, and now I see. I was once dead in my sins, and Jesus opened my eyes, and he forgave me of my sins. He redeemed me. You know, our, our profession of faith is that Jesus saved me. Jesus opened my eyes. I was once blind and now I see. You say, well, what if I was never physically blind? Well, we're still all blinded spiritually. None of us can see without the opening of our eyes by the Lord himself. One uh, commentator said this. He said, man rarely tells a story with absolute correctness they're sure to put in a bit of embellishing. It's kind of like the fish story, right? The fish that was just a little bluegill turns into like a 10 pound, right? And he's always much bigger than he really was. Man is always tempted to embellish something. This blind man doesn't do anything and he's gonna tell the story. He's going to say, listen, Jesus came by me and he spit on the ground and he put the mud in my eyes and he told me to go to this pool and now I see. There's no embellishment. Point A to point B and right back to point A and now the man sees. The beauty of this work of Christ always leaves the recipient of his healing miracle with nothing but words of praise. This man will do nothing from here on out but to praise God for what had happened to him. They said unto him, how were thine eyes open? Verse 10, he answered and said, a man that is called Jesus. Now, we're not gonna see this today, but I want you to remember this next week when we come back to it because I want you to see this man's progression. He's going to refer to this man as this man Jesus and you're gonna watch his eyes even more and more open to the reality of who Jesus really was. A man that's called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes and said unto me, go to the pool of Shalom and wash. And I went and washed and I received sight. Then said they unto him, where is he? He said, I know not. In other words, we want to talk to this man. They don't want to talk to this man to find out how he could heal others. They wanted to get at this man to accuse him. They wanted to accuse him yet again because here's what happened. We read this in verse number 14 or verse number 15 or 14 rather that it was the Sabbath day. To the Pharisees, this meant nothing more than Jesus has broken the law again. No rejoicing that the blind man can see. That same blind man's going to get thrown out of the synagogue by the so-called religious leaders. So it tells us, they said, where is he? And the man says, I don't know. But then it says they brought, they brought to the Pharisees him that was aforetime was blind. So now that we find the blind, blind man is standing before the Pharisees and it was the Sabbath day. That's all we need to know. When Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes, then again the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. 
And he said unto them, he put clay upon mine eyes and I washed and do see. Now, just so we'll have the bridge for next week, verse 16, therefore said some of the Pharisees, this man is not of God because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. I'm sure there's no doubt in my mind that this healing by Jesus was so disturbing to the Pharisees, literally probably angered them more than anything else because clearly God's power, Christ's power is on clear display. Remember, they refused to acknowledge him as the Savior. They refused to acknowledge him as the Christ. The problem with the Pharisees was this, they wanted all the glory for themselves. Uh, They would, what we refer to in our modern day, they were glory hounds. They wanted it all. They didn't have any desire to give Jesus any glory. They didn't have any desire to make sure that Jesus was given the credit for what he had done. They just wanted him to be held accountable for breaking the so-called law of healing on the Sabbath. But you notice that the second time this blind man is asked this question, he's even shortened it even more. His answer now has gone down from this longer explanation in verse number 11. Now he just goes, he put clay on my eyes, I washed and I see. When he's answering the neighbors, he gave them the longer description. God said, Christ said unto me, go to the pool. He made clay. He anointed my eyes. He told me to wash. I washed and received sight. To the Pharisees, it's simply this. He put clay on my eyes. I washed and I see. You see what's happening? This man's now getting to the place where he sees all the glory is given to the man who's healed me. Jesus, as he dealt with the Pharisees on numerous occasions, often would not engage in their argument. He would just simply put on display an object of his mercy. In other words, argue with this. Try to come up with a possible explanation as to this blind man who's been blinded all his life. Come up with an explanation as to how he can see. Listen, there are times in our own life where we're going to spend time trying to explain to the scoffer why things are so. You're going to spend hours debating with people who don't really want to know the truth. Now, I'm not saying don't have conversations, but can I give you a little secret? There are people who are trying to do nothing but to just bait you into a conflict. And they're baiting you in order that they may just just rib you enough then maybe you, you lose your cool, you lose your, uh, your, your sense, and maybe even lose your testimony. And by the way, if you, peop- if you people think, and I think as, as people, that there aren't people out there who are trying to ruin your testimony for the Lord, you're fooling yourself. There are people in this world who literally want to destroy everything that you say your Christ is. They're angered by the fact that you give God the glory for the things. I was talking to someone in the entry, right between services or maybe before, and literally, you mention the word Christ, mention the word gospel, and you're going to get a reaction. And it's mostly, most times going to be negative. Most people are going to call you foolish for leading on the crutch of religion. Uh, you don't lean on a crutch of religion. It's not leaning on anything. Your hope is fully in Christ and in Christ alone. I'm not leaning on anything. I'm trusting fully in what Christ has already done. 
This blind man was not given any credit for himself. He wasn't given any credit to, the, to, to anything but the, the man Jesus, the man who had done this. When you have to deal with the Pharisees of the day, don't give them much to think about. Just give them the short and sweet of it. Just simply say, the Lord saved me. When a man wants to argue, why do you come to the position you come to on the doctrines of grace, for example? Uh, give him the short. Don't get into the argument after argument with a person who doesn't really want to know. You see, when it comes to the end of all this, we find out that Jesus was always behind it. The blind man who was once blind, now he sees he's going to give God all the glory for it. He's going to give Christ all the glory for it. He's going to actually become a person who talks now to these self-righteous Pharisees as a full follower of Christ. You see, when you're dealing with professors of their own righteousness like the Pharisees, I saw this man said, give him as few words as possible. Just remember what was on display. What was on display was God's glory, his works. When we read this story, our emphasis is not on the Pharisees. Our emphasis is on the glory of God. It's not on, hey, look at the Pharisees. It's look at Jesus. Look at what Christ has done. Look at this former blind man as we follow this narrative over the next couple of weeks. This man is going to continually be attacked by his belief in Jesus, and yet he's going to stand pat and say, it was Christ that healed me. It was Christ that healed me. His parents are going to be interrogated, and he's going to still say, it was Christ that healed me. There is no more perfect platform for God to display his wondrous works than in a depraved sinner, right? I mean, what greater platform is there to take people like you and I, who were once dead in our trespasses and sins, blinded to the truth of Jesus Christ, who can now see? What's a greater platform than that? What's a, what's a greater platform to take the once a person who hated God and hated everything, didn't want anything to do with God, who now loves the Lord Jesus with all their heart? What's a greater platform than to watch a man who used to be an abuser of his family and an abuser of his, of his children, who the grace of God gets a hold of him and the man becomes a new creature in Christ? Not everybody's testimony is growing up in a Christian environment. Jesus has gotten a hold of people who were, by our standards, they were the worst of the worst, and yet Jesus used it as a platform to display just how glorious he is. You see, Jesus takes those things that are unlikely, which is every one of us. We may not have been physically blinded, but spiritually, we were no different than this man. And what greater platform does Jesus have than to use the depravity of man to show a divine work of his grace? It's been said, and I don't necessarily agree with this, that the more, the more need in a man, the more need of mercy. But as sinners, we're all in the same need. There is nobody more needy than you. If you're here today and you have never repented and believed the gospel, there's nothing and nobody more needy than you that needs to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ, repent of your sin, and believe on Him wholly. You say, why give such a strong invitation to repentance in a church? We're all saved, maybe. Only the Lord knows that. 
Listen, we have to come to a place of thanksgiving when we say, wow, we are so glad that the Lord worked an act, worked an act of divine mercy in our life. You know, maybe those people that are born with a physical blindness, again, this is just me speaking, the people born with a physical blindness have a view of Christ that maybe those who've had our eyesight all of our life, we don't see it. Maybe those ladies I told you about that just seemed to see something that we didn't see, they saw the same Jesus, but they saw him with different eyes. They saw him through the Jesus that they couldn't see physically, but they knew him. People today are always looking for signs of Jesus. Give me something I can see with my eyes. Give me something I can touch. Give me something I can handle and feel and see that it's real. For a child of God who knows Jesus, you don't need to see Jesus in bodily form at all. It would not affect you one way or the other. If you could go and see where his crucifixion was, if you could go and see his tomb, if you could walk all the steps of the Holy Land, every place he went, if you could see the Sea of Galilee, if you could see the very place in which this blind man was healed, it should not change your faith in Christ at this very moment. Now, it may cause you to break out in praise, but I'll tell you this, you should break out in praise whether you ever set foot on the Holy Land or not because you were blind and now you see. You've been given the greatest gift that a sovereign God could ever give you. He's opened your eyes. Remember, it was not the blind man who looked on Jesus. It was Jesus who looked on the blind man. Same with you. You didn't look on Jesus first. He looked on you. You didn't call on Jesus first. He called you. If he doesn't see you first and doesn't call you first, where does that leave you? Spiritually speaking, still blind. Why do you see today? You see with eyes that Jesus has opened. He fixed his eyes upon you. Folks, this is not anything more for a believer today than to just remind us how we ought to praise the Lord for his divine act of sovereign mercy in our life. If you've never, if you've never experienced, you've never understood it, today's a perfect day for that. Today's a perfect day to say, listen, dear God, open my eyes. Give me eyes to see. And we as believers should daily be begging God to give eyes for people to see. If you want to change your whole prayer life, find the person who you consider right now to be the greatest enemy or the person you just can't get along with, and I want you to beg God to open their eyes. Ask God, open their eyes. Not, God, get them out of my way. God, open their eyes because I know without you, they're blinded. And if you misunderstand all these doctrines, you'll say, well, what difference does it make? Because God determines it anyway. Then you're still missing the point of all of this. We are still called, just like we learned in the 10 o'clock hour, we are called to hope well of those who are not in Christ at this very moment. And what greater stir to action can there be than to say, listen, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it my part of my daily prayer life is to pray for those who are blinded right now because you're seeing blind people spiritually every single day of your life. 
Even if you only leave your house for an hour a day, you are walking amongst blind people every single day who need the Lord. Listen, knowing you've received this sovereign act of God's mercy ought to lead us to a greater desire to pray for those who are outside. But if you've been saved, your eyes have been opened. Take time to praise the Lord for your opened eyes. Next week, we'll look a bit further about this, how this narrative goes. And we'll see the blindness of the Pharisees that remained. And we'll be able to clearly see again this blind man's eyes that have now been opened. Let's stand together.